Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Around with Stephen Cole, a New Orleans cultural and goings-on podcast. My name is T. Cole Newton. We're coming to you, as always, pre-recorded from my bar 12-mile limit in Mid-City. I am here with my adorable co-host, Steve Yamada. Steve Yamada here, guys. Thanks, uh, faithful listeners, for tuning in once again. Really excited about this podcast uh, today. Uh, we feel that, like, uh, we've had a couple podcasts that are very bar-centric, um, and one of the purposes of Around with Stephen Cole is to explore uh, the New Orleans community as well. It's really great to get our perspective on it as bar, as me being a bartender and Cole being a bar owner, but sometimes uh, I feel like we, we make assumptions that may not be completely correct. Yeah, and a lot of what we've talked about in our first handful of episodes touches on real estate sort of tangentially and sometimes a little bit more narrowly focused on real estate, but neither of us are really experts. Steve did do a little bit of community college work towards a real estate license, I just learned, and I have successfully bought two properties in New Orleans, so I'm pretty much an expert, but neither of us are really. So we brought on a couple of a couple of friends who know a lot more about this issue than we do. So Katie, if you want to introduce yourself and then Max... I'm Katie Wittry with Gardner Realtors and the Wittry Collective. Thank you for having me here today. And you are a cutie. Well, thank you. <laughs> we'll talk after this podcast. <laughs> and I'm Maxwell Chardulo, the Director of Policy and Communications with the Greater New Orleans Fair Housing Action Center, which is a mouthful. And I'm also on the board of Jane Place Neighborhood Sustainability Initiative, which is a community land trust that serves the mid-city neighborhood. As far as mouthfuls go, an important mouthful. There's some people <laughs> who get titles which are like just a bunch of blah, 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 but those are all very important things um, that we hope to learn more about. Me personally, this is going to be a very much a listening episode for me, I feel. Um, <laughs> so I'm just here to listen and learn and maybe throw a joke in here and there. All right. Uh, Katie, let's just talk a little bit about your sort of personal trajectory, your professional history, you have gotten some measure of acclaim as a realtor. I, I constantly see you and your company listed on the best of list and the year-end list. You've sold houses or f- secured properties for a number of friends of mine. And uh, it seems like you've, you've achieved a, a status in the industry here that probably has an interesting story in its own right. But just to, to talk a little bit about uh, the, your professional arc, I guess, to this point, how you got a collective behind you. All good questions. I would say that it came from having a nonprofit and social justice background. I worked in immigration and refugee services um, for five years after college, and I was actually meeting people um, at um, the port stowaways, asylees coming into this country for the first time, as well as refugees being in a refugee camp and coming to New Orleans. So I was really that ambassador for them um, and sort of connecting them with all the social resources, education, health care, um, employment um, from that point on. And I started as a caseworker and worked my way up to the director of the program. And um, I decided to work as a assistant to my neighborhood. And my neighbor who was a realtor in the Irish Channel. And so I um, had made the transition and it's been about 12 years now that I've been a realtor. And I work in strictly the historic neighborhoods of New Orleans. Those are the, the streets I know that I say often. <laughs> awesome. Are you a New Orleans native? I am not. I actually came to uh, Loyola, and um, I spent two brief years in Mobile, Alabama, and then I came here for a week, and I went to a concert and um, <laughs> said, what am I doing in Mobile? <laughs> so I um, quickly switched gears and transferred from um, Spring Hill to Loyola. And I've been here so, 20 years. So if you're looking at the timeline, if you started in real estate about 12 years ago, and I would estimate that Katrina was about 11 and a half years ago right now, Correct. that 
it's got to mark a pretty significant change in the landscape. How how do you think that? I mean, I, I, it's impossible to encapsulate in a half hour program. Much probably write several theses about the subject, but right. just how how did that alter the landscape here? So Katrina, you know, I always. Re- reference people refer back that we've had five or six different real estate markets since I've been in the business. And when I first got in, it was low interest rates on a lot of predatory lending and a lot of things that were happening where, you know, no income, uh, no documentation loans. And so I was new. I didn't have any clients then. So I just really sat by the sidelines and be able to see sort of how that market was running and property values were really increasing. And then we had Katrina happen, which devastated a lot of the city. And so there was a lot of rebuilding coming into play at that time. A lot of people still have not been able to, you know, rebuild their homes and have had, had been relocated. I decided that I was going to sit at my real estate office for six weeks starting in October of 2006, October 2005, and answered the phone hmm. to see what people needed. Hmm. And at that time, I really learned that people needed temporary housing. And so I was able to connect people with a lot of um, rentals because people couldn't come back, but they needed some of their houses rented. So I was able to sort of fill that void. And um, that's how I was able to really start into real estate and connect people with things that they needed. And we helped people that had flooded houses, gutted houses, things that had burnt, you know, to the ground. And we also had a lot of people coming into the city at that time being temporary workers needing housing in order to say, you know, Katrina benefited us to a degree in terms of softening the effect that the economic downturn happened in 2008 because we were still in recovery mode. So the rest of the country was going through, uh, you know, a pretty huge recession at that point. And um, we still had a lot of rebuilding and funding. And thankfully, the world really helped a lot of our cities or a lot of our neighborhoods come together Um at that point and start to rebuild. Broadmoor is a great example. Lower Ninth Ward is a great example of neighborhoods coming together. And I've seen that those property values have really maintained um, because of the community involvement at that point. I think Katrina, it it was a disaster of effort proportions, but it created a lot of opportunities for people professionally. And it did help because of the way federal funds were earmarked, because of the way attention was drawn to the plight of the city. It really helped insulate New Orleans as a market from the economic downturn that affected the rest of the country and the world around that time. And that's just from my non-expert eyes, it, it, that, that was the, seemed to be the case right. at least. Uh, Max, do you want to talk a little bit about your uh, background, your professional trajectory, what, uh, what brought you to the city if you're not from here originally and uh, what you do for a living? Sure, absolutely. Um, so my professional trajectory is, um, it's almost always been in nonprofit work. I started out doing public health and HIV prevention, um, in DC and New York and ended up in grad school for urban planning in Massachusetts. I kept moving the wrong way up the East Coast, getting colder and colder. Um, and eventually my partner and I decided after grad school, uh, she grew up in Florida that, uh, it was time to go south. And I grew up outside Chicago. So, um, I was, frankly done with winter um <laughs> enough's enough right yeah uh, and i got lucky i i got a fellowship that could have placed me in detroit or cleveland or youngstown or fresno um so new orleans was new orleans was obviously the clear winner um <laughs> i came down to work for the health department for about two years um working on the rollout of obamacare at the local level uh, trying to make sure folks had health insurance 
um, and then jumped over to the Fair Housing Center. And I think just to come back to what we were talking about before, which is that sort of the the way that the the recovery dollars after Katrina um, really sort of softened the blow of, of the 2008 housing crisis. I think that's absolutely true. And it provided a lot of opportunities. I would just to add the context and the history. I would say that we also missed a serious opportunity in using that money in an equitable way. Uh, right. Mm. And so I think, you know, the one sort of easy encapsulated statistic about that, we're in the, we are, work at the Fair Housing Center, we care about uh, housing discrimination and housing segregation. So New Orleans is now more segre- more racially segregated 11 years on after the storm than it was before the storm. Mm-hmm. And I think that blows people's mind a little bit. But it's it's absolutely the result of the fact that we didn't use a lot of that money that came down in a way to integrate our city to create housing opportunities in all neighborhoods for everyone, et cetera. I think I was struck when I first moved down here, which was about a year after the storm, that having grown up in D.C., D.C. and a lot of cities farther north, which felt felt very segregated and still feel very segregated. And people don't necessarily... They are, very much so. But I grew up in D.C. during the 80s and 90s when it was probably 70-plus percent black, and my neighborhood... It was, it was rare to see a black person. And it was one of the, one of several pockets of, of, of white people in the city. And moving down to New Orleans, it just, it felt much more like a, like a tighter check, checkerboard, basically. There, yeah. there, there were, there were good streets and bad streets, but they weren't in different neighborhoods. They were two blocks away from each other. And so it, it, it I, I really liked that because in a way it meant that uh, an affluent person in New Orleans, with a few exceptions, pockets of Uptown, Black Pearl, that, those areas um, that are a bit more isolated. But it made it so people, affluent people who choose to live in New Orleans, they couldn't insulate themselves from the realities of poverty in, a, in the way that people living in the north in, in isolated rich pockets in cities can. And, if, if, and it's, it is sad to hear that that's... We're losing that to a certain extent, that people are becoming more and more isolated. Um, do we want to, let's talk a bit about affordability since we're sort of, that seems like a natural transition. We can talk about, we'll talk about it first through, through Katie's perspective for people who are purchasing homes. Uh, we've, she's described already the sort of the, the several different marketplaces that she's encountered and that there's always, it's always in transition. Always. So yeah, let's, let's talk about that transition and how it relates to housing affordability for people trying to purchase homes in the city. So, and I can only reference on residential real estate. I am working with the family who has potentially getting ready to lose their house or there's been a divorce or there's been someone that has passed away. So that's really the area that I, um, I work in. So not on the apartment scale or the development scale and really just sort of one-to-one. And I really say I'm just in people's living rooms. So in terms of affordability, I'm seeing now that the market is definitely in transition. And so people always are quick to say to me, well, that means it's going down. And I say, well, we're in transition. If you look at, you know, markets, there's always ebbs and flows. And we were at a five to a seven year appreciation for several reasons. And now we're at a point where buyers are waiting to see, is there going to be a bottom? There's not that sense of urgency coming in. We have longer days on the market. And what I'm finding is that people are going to be able um 
to maybe buy in neighborhoods that they weren't able to buy in beforehand. You know, we've had people change a lot of neighborhoods. Marini and Bywater, a lot of people were moving to Holy Cross um, or Gentilly. Um, now, all of a sudden, there's a little more affordability within the Marini and Bywater area. Um, definitely 7th Ward and um, in the St. Rock neighborhood as well. And so New Orleans is still um, extremely expensive. Um, I had read last night that we are still the top 20th most expensive city to live in. We still don't make... Certainly compared to wages, <laughs> right? Wages. Yeah. And I, I think we're really sensitive about it, too. And what I've learned is that a lot of cities are going through this transition. We just take it super personal because it's New Orleans. <laughs> and we have lived under the radar for a really long time. And until Katrina happened, we didn't necessarily have that national spotlight on it. So we took it even more sensitive um, when people were moving in from other parts um, and willing to pay more for mm-hmm. a property. Before Katrina, um, it was usually around um, a dollar or less a square foot for an average double. So if you have a 2,000-square-foot property split in half, 1,000 square foot each side, it was anywhere between, you know, 700 to $1,000, depending yeah, on how many bedrooms. That sounds about right. That, my apartment before Katrina was a three-bedroom shotgun. It was only $600, right behind Whole Foods. So, I mean. Oh, wow. After... Um, the storm, things went up to around 170 to $2 a square foot. Um, we're starting to see that actually go down. Um, so I do see that um, we're having a lot of rentals available also because every time a new vertical building goes up downtown, mm-hmm. um, we have more inventory. And so um, there's more available and that's going to actually transition so that hopefully we'll get some more affordable rentals. So I uh, I recently moved into uh, a larger apartment complex. I live over the American Can Company, which I never thought would be a thing um, for me, but uh, just considering like, you know, what the market was when I left my old apartment, my, my landlord, uh, I had lived at her place for just down the street over Murad. I had lived there for about five years, um, was paying about $1,700 is a big place. And there's probably a pretty good deal, but she never made any improvements to the place as well. Insulation was horrible. Uh, it was extremely hard, like the uh, heating, cooling costs and everything like that. But she comes to us one day and is just like, you know, oh, I, I think I want to raise the rent. It's going to be like $2,500 now. It's like a $1,000 increase. I mean, of course, I can't afford that. That's absolutely crazy. And her response to me was, was, well, I think I'll just turn into an Airbnb. Then, you know, I could probably make that money off of it. We'll touch on Airbnb here in a second. That's There's a lot of controversies in New Orleans about how those short-term rental properties are managed. Uh, a lot of other cities are facing the same thing, but New Orleans always has its own unique spin on, on the day's <laughs> news. So we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But let's talk about affordability in the rental market more broadly first. And Max, I think that's more your area of expertise. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always important to think about, um, employment in this city and in this, in the greater area, right? So uh, Katie and I were talking about this before we started outside. Um, but primarily, our economy is driven by hospitality, tourism, service sector jobs, bartending, working in hotels, um, serving the millions of tourists who come here every year. Do entertainers fall under that umbrella? And Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, I mean, there's some other pieces to it, right? There's what they call eds and meds, the uh, educational institutions, the hospitals, certainly now that we're building the two big ones. Um, but, but, you know, those are folks who don't make a lot of money. And so, and they didn't make a lot of money before the storm, and they still don't make a lot of money, but the rents doubled on them, and then have continued to go up. So you have a lot of people, and, and that's where the, the unaffordability in New Orleans is maybe starker than even other places around the country, is that we have incredibly low wages with comparably high rents. 
Um, and I think, you know, there were some things that were driving some of the even high, you know, the, the increase in rents. We were talking about some other, other industries that, you know, the oil and gas industry, um, the movie uh, industry, movie industry, right? The tax credits that were available for that, that brought in some high income folks to New Orleans that sort of, you know, that the upper edge of that market ticked up a little bit because people realized they could renovate a home and rent it for $2,000 a month. All of a sudden there was a market for that and someone who would come in and, and pay that. Um, and that may have gone away. And so the higher end of the market, I think, has changed. But for the folks who were paying 300 before the storm and are now paying 750 but are still making seven and a quarter, like there's almost two different rental markets in the mm-hmm. city. And for those folks, nothing has eased. Um, and it's just as hard to find something. And they're just as likely to be living in a place now that has leaks in the roof and rats and mold and all, you know, all sorts of other terrible issues. And people are afraid to say, you know, speak to their landlord about it because they want to keep the rent low. Mm-hmm. Right. You, like, sure. you don't want to say we have all right. of these issues with our property, you know, because you are not going to be able to find that $600 rent anymore. Mm-hmm. And so when people come to me and always are looking for that six to $700, I say just reach out to your network. It's all mom and pop. You have to sort yeah. of be able to connect. There's not, um, you know, those rentals, once they reach a 1000 or two, it's just so expensive and they're hard to find. Yeah, uh, it's something that I was thinking about when you were talking earlier, Max, as well. Um, so I've, I've been in the hospitality industry in the city mm-hmm. for a while, pre-Katrina, post-Katrina. Um, like the lack of diversification as well. There's so many people that I knew and that I worked with for a while, too. And when they were displaced by Katrina, a lot of them went to Houston, a lot went to Atlanta as well. And, you know, the question was always, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? Mm-hmm. And they kind of looked at, looked at it and it's like, look, I've got my family out here and I'm making more money living out here. Yeah. Uh, it's cost the same. Like prices have gone up in New Orleans as well. My kids can go to a better school. Like why on earth would I come back? And at, that was always like a very sad kind of scary thing to me as well, too. It's just like we lost so many great hospitality professionals just because they realize it's like, what have I been doing like all this time? You know, like, and it's just, I can, I can actually have a better life and like, I don't know. Yeah. Kind of a rough thing to deal with. Well, and there were some middle class. I mean, there were. We also lost some middle class employment sectors. We had five or six thousand teachers that were all fired. That mm. were middle class employees. We had all of the folks who were employed at the charity hospital that never reopened and couldn't move back right away because they didn't have a job. I mean, so there were some other ways that we made it really hard for people to get back here. Right. Let's talk a little bit about Airbnb now. I think both of you have sort of interesting takes on that. Uh, Katie, let's start with you. You've, you've spoken on this issue publicly before. So I, I have a, um, I guess I have an interesting relationship with Airbnb. I do not have any Airbnbs. Um, I am very against the whole house rental. Um, what I have seen, you know, it was interesting several years ago. I knew the market was changing in 08 when I'd go out to old Jefferson and I would see, show vacant houses. That was a sign to me that the economy was getting ready to take a downturn. Because usually you show a house because the family's living in there, right? Right. And they're in transition, but people had already left because you need to go where the jobs are. I'm having that same experience now with Airbnb because the new ordinance had come in on April 1st. And um, Airbnb has sent out notifications if you're not registered by the city and actually have a permit, then as of the end of May, I think it is, we're not going to, you know, we're going to pull your listing. So Airbnb is on its end actively working with the new ordinance. To, to remove unregistered rental properties from its listings? Is that accurate? Or they said they're going to? So they are making, <laughs> um, 
I actually just asked someone to forward me the email so I could read everything <laughs> that it said because I hadn't received it. But um, I have been told by people that do have Airbnbs that they have to be licensed. And I've probably had four phone calls and emails over the last few days of people that have gone online and applied for permits um, and not able to get them because they don't have their homestead exemption on their property. But going back to walking through and showing houses where you just have beds. Um, and so I'm starting to see a lot of those. So people were actually trying to get in, you know, it was a startup here pretty much, you know, people are actually buying property, renting it. Um, Marity and Bywater, it's tough. Every Friday at around 11, all I see is people getting out of their cars and then Monday, everyone's getting ready to leave. So where are the neighbors, you know, in that mm-hmm. situation? And, um, I'm starting to see a lot of property go on the market because they're not going to be able to do Airbnb unless it's run illegally. So we're going to have um, a lot of those homes listed because they're not making that kind of income, just like your former landlord saying, mm-hmm. well, I can get 2500 I look at it it's like Uber. It used to take a really long time to get an Uber or a Lyft. Mm-hmm. Now it's pretty saturated depending on, you know, where you're going. You're having a lot more of it. Um, and I feel like Airbnb rose really well. Um, and then all of a sudden people are in transition. I um, think that people can be a great ambassador to rent out a potential room in their house. It's also for a way that people are on fixed incomes Mm -hmm. um, or retired to actually have some income coming in and they can be an ambassador. Um, So I've actually changed my thinking on that a little bit. Um, But the whole house rental and the party rentals... um, is something that I see destroying our neighborhoods. Yeah, the party okay. rentals are it's just. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Although, yeah, for me, I see, I mean, because I, I have very strong opinions about uh, housing affordability and gentrification. And, but I also see the other side of it in that uh, owning a bar that is not downtown, it's not in the French Quarter, the decentralization of the hotel industry that Airbnb has created has probably been a net good for my business. But it also means that there are fewer occupied homes of the available homes in the neighborhood that are occupied full times. And as a neighborhood bar, that might be bad for my business. And I I don't know how to, how to necessarily weigh the cost benefit, but I see, we see more tourists in the Airbnb era, but in theory, there are also fewer locals and sort of as a, as a bar that's sort of on one level, a neighborhood bar and then on the other level, a destination bar that affects us in a couple of different ways. Um, Max, you want to talk a little bit about Airbnb, about how it affects rental affordability? And- yeah, I mean, I think our biggest concern with it has been uh, the ways that it could potentially be um, spurring gentrification in neighborhoods that are sort of at that tipping point. Um, so when you look at the places where you've seen the highest increases in Airbnbs lately in the last couple of years, they're not in the Marigny Bywater French Quarter area. They're in... The Seventh Ward, St. Rock, Mid City, mm. uh, Central City. They're in the neighborhoods that are right on the edge of gentrification, uh, sort of the, the tip of the spear there. Um, and I think that, uh, it, it sort of, um, it increases those rental prices in a way that, that doesn't actually make, it's sort of a distortion in the market that doesn't actually make sense for folks. Um, and so that's our biggest concern. And that and the fact that you have owners who are, you know, sometimes, buying up multiple properties own essentially you know hoteliers who are operating you know 19 20 airbnbs throughout the city do you think the current uh regulation of that market will help level out some of those spikes that that's created or i mean based on what katie's saying i think it's it's already doing some good but i don't think it went far enough okay 
It was a compromise for sure. Yeah. I feel like people that were renting short term were renting to a lot of the um, engineers and workers coming in for the recovery. And then we had the movie tax credits come. So then they were renting to the movie individuals and then Airbnb started to take off. So it's like the, yeah. it's changed on who's been actually renting these short term rentals mm-hmm. um, over the last really 10 years. You right. know, a, um, a friend of mine in DC, which is going through a similar demographic chan- transition that New Orleans is, he bought recently a four unit apartment building and promised all of it. He's a, he's a, just a good guy. He promised all of his tenants he'd only increase rents when he absolutely had to, but he converted a basement space into a little studio that he's renting out on Airbnb. And the income that he derives from that has allowed him to maintain the other apartments more affordably for the long-term residents. And I think that there's room for Airbnb to be a force for good. And for for sustaining, but it's it obviously it's not always been the case. Because of it I'd too. be interested as well too. This is just for me being a complete skeptic and like a bit of a pessimist, I guess as well too. If it wasn't an issue that wasn't hitting a major industry like the hotel industry downtown, would it have been taken as seriously as it was? I mean, like, does it have that? Like, does it basically have like you know that coming behind? It? It's like okay, well, all these hotels are pissed off and you know major source of revenue, and they've got a louder voice in the city, so maybe we'll actually listen to this. But I, mean, I, I disagree. I don't yeah. think the hotels are being affected. It's the local. Um, bed and breakfasts okay. and the local mm. neighborhood associations that are more upset. But when I went to the, the last um, economic forecast in November, we had the hotel industry actually speak. Um, and they had said, I mean, it was something like under 5% huh. um, of the take. So I don't see that it's necessarily... Okay them that are complaining, you mm-hmm. know, that it's actually going into their revenue. Yeah. For me, it's just anecdotal evidence on that side. I too. mean, <laughs> like... this was maybe one of the most frustrating uh, sort of public conversations that we had to have as affordable housing advocates um, that I've ever been involved in because the talking point against Airbnb was it makes housing unaffordable. But the people delivering that talking point in many cases were folks who had never shown up to support affordable housing before, <laughs> whether that was neighborhood associations, the hotel industry, whoever it was. Um, that was that was it was clearly not something that was a long term priority for them. It was just a <laughs> moment of opportunity. And so it was it was difficult to sort of find a way to make that uh, a worthwhile point that we could use to really talk about solutions for affordability, because sure, regulating Airbnb is important, but. All those units in the Bywater and in my neighborhood in the Lower Garden District and the Marini, if they were to suddenly no longer be Airbnb units, they wouldn't be affordable. Yeah. They would rent for 1500 you know, whatever, right. and up. So we have to have a bigger conversation about that. Yeah. Uh, Max, uh, let's talk a little bit about Jane's Place. The, oh, yeah. uh, talk about the, the model and the specifics of your organization. Sure. So... Um, Jane Place is a mid-city based... Uh, is it Jane Place or Jane's Place? Jane Place, because it's based after the actual street. And that's where our first property is built, and that's where we own some other property and are trying to develop. Um, so we're a neighborhood-based community land trust. Community land trusts were started in the 60s, actually, as part of the civil rights movement. Um, and there is a response to uh, sharecroppers who didn't have control over their own land. Um and so it's about the idea is communally owned land. So uh, everyone who's a part of the organization has a say in sort of what the organization does with its land. Uh, and then the other key piece is permanent affordability. Um, so when we build residential, when we build apartments or homes, uh, they're permanently affordable. They're affordable forever. Um, so those are the two keys to it. And, and the important piece and why I think 
uh, it can be a really important response to gentrification is that it literally takes the land off the market. Um, so it can't be speculated on um, and puts it into control of the community um, or of the organization in this case, which should be a representative of the community. So that's what we're trying to do. The apartment building that we built uh, is four units and uh, they're three bedrooms and they rent for half of what a three bedroom would go for in that part of Mid-City. Uh, and, um, you know, we have committed to ensuring that it never rolls out of affordability like uh, um, those units at the American Can, I'm sure you're familiar with, right? <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. Uh, the folks who were uh, nearly evicted during yes. Christmas, uh, right? So that's never going to happen at our building. Um, and the same thing with homeownership. If we were to sell a home to someone, there would be a restriction in the deed that would make it so that... Um, they could live there, they could add to it, improve it, and when they sell it, they could make as, they would make all of the equity back that they put in, they would make any of the improve, improvements back that they put in, and they would make a portion of the appreciation, but not all of it. Mm. And what was left of that appreciation would stay with the home to make it affordable to its next buyer. Cool. So that it cycles and continues to be affordable forever. Are there other uh, community land trust endeavors in New Orleans as well besides that? I mean, well, so there's the the Crescent City Community Land Trust, uh, which is building the. Uh, they're just finishing the Pythian building on Loyola across from the library. Um, they're C- having an open house tomorrow night. Um, the <laughs> renovators' happy hour for the PRC from five thirty to seven thirty. So please come and check it out. Awesome. This episode will will this episode be? It'll be out tomorrow. All right. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. So awesome. go. Yeah. Go have some cocktails and then come to Twelve Mile. <laughs> yeah. Good choice. <laughs> Uh, Katie, you said your focus is exclusively on historic neighborhoods. I want to talk a little bit about that. A couple of, a couple of things just come to mind, uh, apropos of dealing with historic neighborhoods. Do you feel that the historic preservation and the instincts towards historic preservation, anecdotally, I've heard, People complain, property owners who are trying to make changes to their property to make them more marketable or to make them more comfortable if they want to stay in them, that these historic associations, historic preservation associations, ha- un- wield an more power than they should and stand as an opt- obstacle to making these kinds of improvements. But if you look at it from the other perspective, there's a lot of historic cultural capital in New Orleans, and by preserving that, they are, in the long term a force for good in terms of maintaining the value of property in New Orleans because of its historic, well, how you can appreciate it from a historic perspective. So I'm curious, especially because your perspective is of someone who exclusively deals in these historic neighborhoods, but you just want to talk about that, the, the, the power of those organizations and the, the value that they bring and the obstacles that they can throw up towards, uh, just a, a simple renovation, changing the color of your house in some neighborhoods is not allowed. So you're talking specifically, I know, about the HDLC, which is the Historic District Landmark Commission. That is usually the organization or the, the, the governing power that people get the most upset about. You need to educate yourself on what they have jurisdiction over. They have an amazing website. <laughs> they have staff on duty 9 to 5 that will answer your questions. You need to be able to go to City Hall and learn what you can and cannot do. Um, We have the whole city um, is in a national historic district, and then we have local districts. The HJLC governs local districts. The Vu Carre Commission just governs the French Quarter. They are the only neighborhood where they can um, determine um, what color you're going to paint your house. 
Um, in HDLC neighborhoods, uh, they are going to regulate what you can see from the outside of the house. Um, what is your vantage point to be able to be there? The Preservation Resource Center has a whole advocacy arm um, that we work on um, to save buildings from demolition, um, from people just coming in and saying, I'm going to destroy this whole block and rebuild, you know, all new construction. We need to preserve what we have. Next year will be 300 years old. That's really impressive, the tricentennial. And so we're preparing, you know, um, for that as a city as a whole and especially the PRC. But... Um, one thing that people should do is look at One Stop Shop when they're thinking about a property. It is a city website, and it can tell you what violations a house may have. So if a homeowner or a developer didn't want to go through the proper channels, um, those violations will actually be um, noted in the One Stop Shop. And so that should be part of the education program. We need to be able to preserve as much as possible, and we have the best at least for this year, we don't know what's going to happen in this political climate, but we have the best tax credits anywhere in the United States and win awards over awards for being able to preserve our cities. And that's why our tourism is so strong, too. People come here and mm -hmm. it's mind-bending. It's things that they've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And um, we need to be able to preserve that. I understand that... There are definitely individuals on the board that could take things a little far, but you have to show up for those meetings. You have to go to the city planning commission. You have to do your civic duty, and you need to be also able to advocate for yourself if you may not have all the resources that that um, board is suggesting about your changes. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about is the uh, the use of special districts in neighborhood development. We... Uh, our, our next week's episode, we've already recorded, but we've talked to Neil uh, from Cure, who was a big force in turning around the Ferret Corridor between Napoleon and Louisiana. We've seen special districts pop up around the city and those really anchoring turnarounds in community. But I want to talk about maybe maybe that's a double-edged sword. Maybe th that turns these neighborhoods that have historically been more affordable, it turns people out of those neighborhoods, especially renters whose properties, the properties they've been living in are more valuable. They can be rented to somebody at a higher income level. Do you, are there, are there other unforeseen drawbacks to using that model? And, and we also talked earlier in earlier episodes about Gentilly being an attractive place to perhaps open uh, a bar or a brewery or something along those lines, but there hasn't been a lot of movement towards that, even though everyone I talk to about it is like, oh yeah, that'd be a great idea, but there's no, the, the zoning doesn't line up that way. So I think if, to both of you talk about uh, how it affects affordability in the rental market, but also are there, are there drawbacks to that model? Should it be replicated in other neighborhoods where we're looking to see more economic development? Um, uh, Max, you want to start on that one? Yeah, I, I mean, so I, I mean, I think you know, changing zoning to allow different uses. I don't think that's necessarily good or bad. It's a tool, um, but these are when I, when I talked about sort of the um, inequitable develop or inequitable sort of recovery, right? Mm -hmm. There were choices that were made uh, about how how we were going to do things, um, and, and those choices have consequences. So if you decide we're going to put a new streetcar line in, or we're going to put a development district on a street, or we're going to build a greenway or we're going to put a Whole Foods in, those have consequences for the real estate market. 
all of the things I've talked about raise prices. Mm -hmm. um, and it's pretty predictable that they're going to raise prices, right? I, I, so, I, you know, it's these are things that are not inevitable. They're choices that were made. And they have clear consequences that we can predict. And I think when that's the case, the onus is actually on, on the city or whatever governing authority we're talking about to ensure that the folks who live there can stay to actually benefit from the amenity that's putting, being put in. And so there are policies you can take to do that to ensure that there's some affordable housing in a neighborhood before you rezone it, before you add an amenity, before you add a park that's going to raise the prices for the folks who live there. What kind of steps can municipalities take to ensure that prices remain affordable for people so that, that as their neighborhood becomes more accessible, perhaps, or has more economic development, that they aren't priced out? Sure. I mean, the, the the most basic one is the city gets an allotment of money from the federal government every year, and they can just target it into neighborhoods where they know this is happening. Um, another one is uh, inclusionary zoning, which is something uh, that we're working on right now. It's called the Smart Housing Mix Policy, which would uh, mean that when you when a developer builds um, luxury rental apartments or any market rate rental apartments uh, or or market rate condos, they would have to um, hold some small percentage of that as affordable. So if you build 100 units, 15 of them would have to be affordable. Um, Is there a time limit on that, like at the American Can, where it's like a 10-year? 10, 10 yeah, so we're learning from our mistakes, right? right? It's not 15 <laughs> years anymore. They're considering 50 to 99 years, Great. Um, essentially the life of the building. Awesome. The third one would be for home ownership, which is that, uh, you know, before you, uh, you know, put you know, $33 million into parks, parkways in the St. Rock market in the St. Rock, St. Claude, Bywater neighborhood, you could pass something that says that if your uh, tax assessment for as a homeowner jumps more than a certain percentage in a certain year, that we're going to freeze it at a level so that people don't get essentially taxed out of their homes. Folks who owned homes in those areas for a really long time, some of them may be on fixed incomes, um, and all of a sudden their assessment jumped from you know, a couple hundred dollars a year to a couple thousand dollars a year, um, that can make a huge difference for folks. And that would be a really easy thing that cities, Chicago, Boston, uh, D.C. have all done this. Um, and it's something that we could consider as well. Okay. And people should consider, I mean, if they're over 65, they can actually file for a freeze on their taxes. Right. And I feel like we need to do a public service campaign yeah. on that. Another public service campaign is people should consider recording their leases. I can't tell you the amount of properties um, that I come into contact at where people's leases aren't recorded. And if they're not recorded, um, your lease cannot be enforced. So I, and it, it takes money, you know, you actually have to go to the conveyance office and go ahead and pay. Um, but I think it's maybe $25 a page. So a five page lease that is a hundred, however, a hundred that actually you could stay in your rental situation for much longer is something that I think people need to be made aware of. Mm -hmm. And our city government is very pro-development this time around. So we need to be engaged and also just do your civic duty in finding out um, what's on the docket. What are people talking about? And go and voice those concerns. All right. All right. Well, I think that's about all the time that we have. If you uh, guess want to go around one more time and uh, any closing thoughts, just uh, reintroduce yourselves to our audience. Yeah, parting shots here. Parting shots. Sure. So uh, this is Max with the Fair Housing Center. Uh, my parting shot is, I guess, to pay attention. We mentioned briefly about some of the um, substandard housing issues with rentals in the city and that uh, they plague a lot of folks. Um, and the city council in the next month, hopefully, will be taking something up that could actually change that and hold landlords accountable. 
um, ensure that, um, you know, the onus is not on renters to make themselves vulnerable and, and, uh, be threatened with eviction every time they speak up and say that something's wrong with their apartment. Katie? Katie Wittry with uh, Gardner Realtors Wittry Collective. I would say get engaged. Um, also align yourself with um, a good realtor, somebody that actually knows your neighborhood, someone that can actually sit in your living room and tell you sort of what your options are. Speak about those potential zoning changes and anchors and try to get access to really good information so that you can make good decisions um, for you and your family. Steve, is there anything that you've uh, learned in our conversation that you want to touch on? <laughs> I think um, for me, uh, with a lot of things recently for me as well, um, I'm looking to start conversations and I don't want them to end. Like, this is great. I'm going to be definitely talking to you, Max. I I'd really love to learn a lot more about what you're talking about. Um, it's time for a lot of us to get a lot more involved in this community. I think an, an issue that we have in the bar industry, especially the cocktail quote-unquote community, that we talk about is that we act like we're a community, but how involved are we actually in the lives and preserving the culture here in, in supporting diversification and bringing people up and making them be inclusive. I think it's been a big problem for us as a, as an industry. Um, and it starts at becoming more involved and aware and informed on something as simple as housing, you know? So, um, I really appreciate this. It's been great. Thank you guys so much for coming on. I really appreciate everything you all have done and, yeah, I think uh, I think we can leave it at that. Once again, this is T. Cole Newton coming at you with... Uh, round with Stephen Cole. This is Steve Yamada. And we'll catch you next week. Thanks, everybody.